Go ahead and please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 in the church Bibles, it's page number 1489. Our text is from chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. This passage falls under the category of one of those hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. But even though it it is a hard saying, it's uh, nevertheless true. Because in these verses, Jesus describes the demands of true discipleship. He wants every one of us to understand without a shred of doubt that unless he is the number one priority of our lives, we are not really his disciples, no matter what we claim. That's why I've titled today's message as Jesus, the number one priority of our lives. So please uh, pay close attention to what the Holy Spirit has recorded for us in these verses as I read through this entire passage, beginning in verse 25, Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That last phrase, let them hear, is actually a strong command. It's almost like saying, you better listen. That's what our Lord says three times in this section. Jesus talks about that that phrase repeats, cannot be my disciple, end of verse 26, end of verse 27, end of verse 33. In other words, these are my terms. These are my terms. Jesus is very clear. So let's pay close attention to these verses. But before we look into them, let's pray and ask the Lord to have his spirit work deep in all of our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. Hard words, but living words. You have the words of eternal life, said Peter. We agree. And we pray that especially these words would come through the power of your spirit so that each and every one of us will truly understand what it means to be a disciple and not be deceived into thinking we are yours when we clearly are not. And for those who are far away, Lord, I pray that your spirit will draw them to you to see 
you as the greatest treasure and that they would turn to you with the repentance and faith that you would graciously grant to all who call to you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. In the 1970s, there was a fellow by the name Robert Funk who claimed to be a New Testament scholar. He put together a group of about 70 other so-called New Testament scholars and their goal was to rediscover the historical Jesus. They claimed the historical Jesus was hidden for 2,000 years behind Christian traditions, myths and legends. The group was called the Jesus Seminar. And their purpose was to meet twice a year, every six months. They would examine the four Gospels and other early Christian literature to discover not only the real Jesus, but also to discover what the real Jesus really said. The way they would do this is they would take votes every time they meet. They would take the four Gospels and the other early Christian literature and they would vote on it. Is this what he said or not? And basically, they would vote using four different colored beads, red, pink, gray, and black. Red color indicated, the beads would be dropped in a box. Red color indicated, Jesus definitely said this. Pink indicated, Jesus probably said this. Gray indicated, Jesus did not say it, but the idea or ideas contained in that particular verse may reflect something Jesus might have said. Black indicated Jesus absolutely did not say it. Each color was assigned a rating. Red was given three, pink was two, gray was one, black as you can imagine zero. The results would be tabulated to kind of achieve a weighted average. And in 1993 they published a book titled The Five Gospels Five Gospels, which contains an introduction and new translations with the commentary of the Gospels with the new one added. What's the new one? The Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas. Which, which is clearly a false gospel. The early church rejected it. But they said this was, again, one of those things that was hidden for 2,000 years, so they added it. For example, this is one of the passages found in the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. This is how Jesus responded. Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it any wonder that the Gospel of Thomas is resurfacing again now in our day and age? You can see why they rejected it then and why we ought to reject it now. But they claimed this was one of the authentic Gospels. And as they put the book together, they had their all four color scheme and uh, their conclusion, less than 20%, 18% to be specific, of the recorded sayings in the four Gospels that we have, they said it's either red or pink. Again, understand, pink stands for Jesus possibly may have said it. Almost the entire Gospel of John is in black. False Gospel of Thomas significantly gets a higher rating, more red than pink than the others. They deny Jesus' deity, which explains the Gospel of John being in black. 
They deny the virgin birth, the miracles Jesus did, his death as a substitute for our sins, his resurrection amongst others, and even the prayer that he taught us to pray. Only two words survived, our father. They deny the Holy Spirit being the author of scripture who breathed out God's words through certain men. And guess what they concluded about Luke 14, the passage that I just read. What color did they give? Black, majority of it. Now, we as born again believers may express utter disgust as such movement towards such movements that promote false teachings and rightly so, rightly so. And we may even cry out, how could someone today sit and vote on what was true 2000 years ago? What arrogance to sit in judgment over God's word rather than come under its authority, we may cry out. We may even say, and rightly so, that this is nothing but a demonic attack inspired by Satan himself. But here's the issue. While we unhesitatingly affirm with our mouths that not just this passage in Luke, but the entire Bible, entire Bible, is God-breathed and we are to come under its authority. Do our lives match what our, what our lips profess? Take even this passage, these 10 verses or so. Those of us who claim to be disciples of Jesus, if we honestly examine our lives in the light of what the Lord has said in these verses, can we genuinely say Jesus is truly the number one priority of our lives? The Lord is not asking if we are perfect. He knows none of us can be perfect. What he's asking is this, just the direction of your innermost desires, your motives and your outward actions give evidence that I and my interests are the main priority of your life. Or are you just saying you believe in me, you believe I spoke these words, but in all reality, your life clearly shows you live for your own pleasures. That's the issue that Jesus poses in front of us today. You see, passages like these ought to shake us up, especially those of us who are in the western part of the world, because we often forget what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to deny ourselves, what it means to put him above all else, what it really costs to be a follower of Jesus. Passages like these are good reminders that we don't get to define what true discipleship is. Jesus alone has that right and in his mercy he has laid it out here so that you and I can clearly understand what true discipleship really is. He says clearly not once but three times unless we submit to him on his terms which he's laid out here we cannot be his disciples. So we must take his word seriously because what's at stake here is huge, huge. My sincere prayer is that by the end of this message, the Holy Spirit will help us, help you, help me to take these truths to heart and give us the power and the willingness to repent of our sins where we need to repent and also be willing to change from our heart, inside out, so that Jesus can truly be the number one priority of our lives because any other way of living will not lead us to heaven but to hell that unending place, that place of unending, fully conscious 
never mitigating place of great suffering and torment. Please keep that in mind. The choice is laid out for us. Jesus says one path leads to life. The other path leads to eternal, conscious, unending torment. That's what these verses talk about. A little bit of context here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. A journey that started way back in Luke 9 verse 51 where we read Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what was awaiting him at Jerusalem? Only one thing. The cross. The cross. And we read in verse 25, the beginning part. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. No surprises here. Vast majority following him for the wrong reasons. All for the wrong reasons. But Jesus, notice, doesn't get carried away with popularity. He wanted people to understand what it truly means to be his follower, to be his disciple. So turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Notice, first of all, the words of Jesus right from verse 26 on to verse Till the end, verse 35. This is not a call for existing Christians to step it up to the next level as serious-minded believers. But it is a call to salvation itself. Why? Because large crowds is a mixture of both followers, true followers, and those who are not. In what sense is this message for true followers? It is this. What Jesus is saying is this. Let this serve as another reminder to you as to this is what it means to be my follower. Perhaps you've been distracted lately. Perhaps I'm not the number one priority in your life. You've moved away. Your eyes have been shifted away. So I want you to understand. Go back to the basics. I want you to understand. I must always be the number one priority of your life. It's a call to re-examine our faith. Bible test talks about examine yourselves if you are in the faith. This is a passage that calls us to examine our lives to see that. But also, if you're not here, if, if you're here, not because you're a believer, but you've been invited, you're coming here, you're not still a Christian, you're still searching, you're still trying to understand what this Christian faith is about, praise God, you have yet another opportunity understand what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Hopefully the Spirit of God will help you make the right decision and there's only one right decision surrendering your life to Jesus no matter the cost because what's at stake for you is eternity, heaven or hell. But also you want to make the right decision because Jesus is worthy of your submission. That's really the first reason. Sometimes we put about, we talk about our salvation, me being away from hell. That's the main thing. That's not the main thing. We bow down to Jesus because he is worthy. Byproduct of that is we get to stay outside of hell. We want the giver first and foremost, not the gift. Look again at verse 26. If anyone, nobody's spared, no exemptions, don't think you are, you alone are the exemption. 
This call is for every single person. But also notice how Jesus is openly inviting everyone. No restrictions. Anyone. Anyone comes to me, meaning in order to be my disciple, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. You must put me above your family, even above your own life. That's Jesus' non-negotiable condition. Now, does Jesus mean we are to literally hate our family members and to be bitter towards them? Absolutely not. Let me give you at least two reasons why that cannot be the case. Reason number one, in Matthew 22, verse 39, Jesus himself called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And family is the closest neighbor we have. And in fact, on the cross, Jesus himself made provision for his mother so that she could be cared for. That's his parent, mother. Second reason is the New Testament in many places gives commands related to loving our spouses, loving our children, caring for family members. All of those commands would be meaningless if we were to take this as literal hatred. The call to hate has the idea of our love for Jesus should be so intense that all other loves would seem insignificant in comparison. It has the idea of loving others to a lesser degree than loving Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. You're in Luke. Flip back two books. You're in Matthew. Matthew 10 verse 37, page 1388. Matthew 10 verse 37. Here's another passage. Jesus describes discipleship, what it means to be his follower. But notice what he does here in verse 37. Anyone, again, no exemptions, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here, notice, he's not talking about hatred. He says, you love more than me. You love more than me. In other words, it's a degree of comparison. Your love for me must be so intense that all other loves, including love for parents and children, and Luke adds love for your wife and brothers and sisters. That's what he says. Should be lesser in comparison. Back to Luke. What he's essentially saying is this. If what I require of you clashes with the desires of your family members, Meaning if you come to faith and your family members are not going to like it, guess what? You have to put me above them. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. I must always come first. I must always come first. Now this may not mean much for most of us, but see it in its original context for a moment. A Jew living in Palestine hearing this, if he comes out of Judaism to embrace Jesus, he would face severe opposition. All ties would be broken. That's a severe price he would pay. People in that audience would have clearly understood what Jesus was calling them to do. It's like today, in the Middle East or in some communist countries or countries hostile to Christianity, for them even to say that, I want to follow Jesus they would have to face a severe, be willing to face a severe price there. In such settings, there's no casual devotion to Jesus, only a serious commitment. And Jesus never sought casual followers, not then, not now. Some of you 
in this room know what I mean. You are facing some challenges in your home because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Either from your parents or from your spouses, you became a believer after you were married and now you are facing intense pressure. It's a daily thing. But that's the cost, Jesus says. All who come to him must be willing to pay. If family comes between you and me, you putting your faith in me, I must come first. If family comes between you getting baptized publicly because I command you, I must come first. In every relationship, Jesus says, I must be the number one priority of your life. And he takes it a step further from talking about family not coming between him and us. He goes on to talk about not even the love for our own lives to come between him and us. Look at the second part of verse 26 where he says, unless a person is willing to hate, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The typical tendency for us is to protect our own lives no matter the cost. But in following Jesus, we must make the choice. Is my life worth losing for the life he offers if I follow him? Or should I cling to this temporary life and deny him and end up losing it anyway in the end? That's the choice. Earlier in Luke 9.24, Jesus said this, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's an exchange, Jesus says. It's a costly exchange for sure, but one thing that's clear is this. We cannot have all that we want in this life and also have Jesus as the number one priority of our lives at the same time. Every day, every decision, you and I must choose if our desires and our actions promote the interests of Christ or our own interests. And the interest of Jesus does include putting the interests of others above our own interests. He's clearly forcing us to make a choice. Be willing to die to your interests and find life in me and in my interests or live it up now. Live it up. But you'll end up losing it all. And to reiterate the radical nature of discipleship, notice what Jesus went on to say in verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Five times in the Gospels, Jesus talked about carrying up, carrying up or taking up the cross. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And here he adds the word daily and follow me. And the fifth time here in Luke 14, verse 27. Carrying the cross is Jesus' way of saying, be willing to suffer for me, even if that suffering leads you to lose your life for me. He is clear. There is no genuine salvation without cross-bearing. We cannot seek the crown in heaven by bypassing the cross on earth. That's his message. Yet, despite the clarity of Jesus' words, self-denial, Cross-bearing is not spoken of much as it should, even though they are the core ingredients of the salvation message. Perhaps we don't speak about it much because deep in our hearts, we just don't like these terms. 
We like to hear about how God will heal all our broken relationships, fix all our financial issues, fix our health struggles, fulfill all our desires, give us fame and popularity in the here and now, and as a bonus, throw in heaven later. But denial, cross-bearing, facing rejection, seeing our cherished goals being smashed one by one, who needs to hear that? That's why the church at large shrinks back from the hard sayings of Jesus from speaking about the daily carrying of the cross. But without the cross, there is no real salvation. There is no real discipleship. Listen to the words of Walter Chantry from his book, The Shadow of the Cross. That's what he says. Without a cross, there is no following Christ. And without following Christ, there is no life at all. An impression has been given that many enter life through a wide gate of believing in Jesus. Then a few go through the narrow gate of the cross for deeper spiritual service. On the contrary, the broad way without self-denial leads to destruction. All who are saved have entered the fraternity of the cross. Bearing a cross is every Christian's daily conscious selection of those options which will please Christ, pain self, and aim to putting self to death. Let me read that last statement again. Bearing a cross is every Christian's daily conscious selection of those options which will please Christ, pain self, and aim to putting self to death. Hard words, but faithful teachings of Jesus aren't they? No cross, no true faith. No true faith, no true salvation. And the important thing is this, nobody can take up the cross for you. Not your spouse, not your children, not your parents, not your friends. You have to carry it. Or rather, you must cry out to God to make you willing to carry it. It's a personal responsibility. Salvation is a personal matter in one sense. You pick up the cross daily and follow me. That's Jesus' clear call. One writer described death on a cross this way. Death on a cross, he says, is a slow death, but a certain one. Death to self-importance, self-satisfaction, self-absorption, self-advancement, self-dependence, death to self-interest because you serve Christ's honor. It's a slow death, but a certain one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was put to death in 1943 for his commitment to Christ directly based on the orders of Hitler himself just a few weeks before Hitler committed suicide in Germany, surrendered. He understood the call to death associated with cross-bearing. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, this is what he said. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with our affections and lusts. 
every day the Christian encounters new temptations and every day he must suffer anew for Jesus Christ's sake. The wounds and scars he receives in the fray are living tokens of this participation in the cross of his Lord. Cross in Jesus' time was not only a picture of great pain and suffering and death, but also of great shame. If you connect it back to Deuteronomy 21, it says only those who are cursed are put on the cross. That's why the Bible says Jesus became a curse for us. A picture of abject shame. Shame. The people who heard Jesus would have clearly known this is the call. It's a one-way street headed to Calvary. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. That's why in the first century, carrying the cross was not a phrase that was casually thrown about. It meant one and one thing only, certain death. So when Jesus told if anyone wanted to follow him to be his disciple, the message was clear. Be prepared for a life of rejection, shame, suffering, and possibly even death. But isn't joy found often in such pain and suffering and shame that comes with following Jesus? Then Jesus himself endured the shame and the pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12 verse 2. And aren't we all called to follow in his footsteps? Yes, Christian service can at times be extremely hard, painful, disappointing, and soul-crushing. But doesn't the Holy Spirit also remind us not to become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. John Calvin once said, I gave up all for Christ and what have I found? I have found everything in Christ. That's the exchange. We think I'm going to lose this but we're actually going to gain Infinitely more because we're gaining Jesus. Now it doesn't mean that it will always be suffering. doesn't mean it will always be death. Obviously many Christians don't face death or even suffering or persecution to the same extent as some, as some others do. For most of us, honestly, it's a relatively smooth life. And that's Christ's will for some. But the point is this, we must be willing to undergo Whatever suffering may come, whatever shame may come, and that would be evident if in our general lives, Jesus is the number one priority. It will be evident if our lifestyle shows Jesus and his interests are the number one priority or not. That's something that will be evident sooner or later. I do believe this though. I do believe this though. Every true believer, every true disciple will undergo some degree of shame, some degree of suffering, pay some cost for following Jesus. And when the price to be paid comes, they will gladly pay it. That's the test. So please don't conclude all is going to be gloom and doom in the here and now. The question again comes down to the heart's desire that will be evidenced outwardly by what we pursue. Our lives don't lie. Our lives don't lie. Are we living with an open hand, 
not clutching to anything, be it family, possessions, including our very life and letting Christ remove them as he sees fit or add as he sees fit as long as we don't keep clutching them. That's the issue. Jesus' terms are clear. You want to be my disciple? I must be the number one priority and nothing can ever come between you and me. And if you are unwilling to go through life with such a mindset, then he says in the verse 27, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. But this is where people get really uncomfortable. And they brazenly delete these teachings of Jesus, like the Jesus Seminar movement, or in a subtle fashion, don't talk much about cross-carrying. Personally, I don't like it. They feel, or I think this kind of harsh teaching will drive unbelievers away. So evangelism often is geared towards removing these hard sayings of Jesus. The demands of the cross are removed. The demands of genuine repentance is removed. But biblical repentance must be preached and lived out if one is a true disciple. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones on the subject of biblical repentance, this British pastor. This is what he said. Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve wrath and the punishment of God, so you are hell-bound, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it and that you turn your back on it in every way, shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as as its practice and you, you deny yourself, take up your cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. That is repentance. Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. We are fools for Christ's sake. That's what Paul told the proud Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4. Fools. The message of the gospel is foolish. Those who preach it are considered foolish. That is biblical repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus demands from us. In the earlier chapter, Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and 5, twice he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You will perish. Unless you are willing to carry the cross, you cannot be my disciple, is what he repeatedly said. So without true repentance, without the cross, there is no salvation, there is no real forgiveness of sins, and there is no real discipleship. It's been said that Billy Graham, in one of his evangelistic crusades, once said that when Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, you have to take up a cross. When he said that it was the same as saying, come and bring your electric chair with you. Take up the gas chamber and follow me. He did not have a beautiful cross in mind, the cross on a church steeple or on the front of your Bible. Jesus had in mind a place of execution. Jesus is calling for an exchange. All that we are for all that he is. He doesn't say, you are so sinful, stay away from me. He says, no, no, no. Come with all that garbage. But you must come with the willingness not to hold on to it. That's the idea. Come as you are. 
but not with the idea that I will leave you that way. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No question about it. But once you come to Jesus, he's not going to leave you that way. This is not just adding Jesus to your existing sinful lifestyle. This is a death to that so you can live as a new believer. And to drive these truths about counting the cost of discipleships deeper into our hearts, Jesus gives two illustrations, two parables, if you will, in verses 28 through 32. Let's look at the first one. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Tower here most likely refers to a private tower to guard the house or a vineyard for security purposes. You want to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to build, to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Wise people sit down to assess the cost before starting anything. They don't make rash emotional decisions. Why? Because they don't want to be laughed at in the end for failing to finish what they started. Jesus says, you should have the same mindset when it comes to following me. Don't make an emotional decision. Make sure you understand the cost of following me. That's why Jesus was always so transparent about what it costs to follow him. He was not interested in making half-hearted disciples. Yet there are many who don't listen to his words. They foolishly conclude Jesus' Jesus' call to follow him, as one writer put it, as an invitation to an ice cream social. Maybe they were people like this were never given the clear gospel, or they just chose to ignore the hard sayings of Jesus. But whatever the case, it's an emotional response. They start out good. But when things get a little tough, you see the true colors. They don't endure. They turn their backs on Jesus. They are good seeds sown on rocky places or among the thorns that Jesus described in one of his parables. They last only a little while and persecution, when that comes as a result of following the word, they quickly fall away. That's seed on rocky places. Or the worst ones are these. They stick around Jesus. Come to church week after week. Be part of Bible studies week after week. Even be in ministry. Even be a preacher. But they're so caught up with the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things, that things that satisfy their flesh, they end up being unfruitful. That's the seed among thorns. And those will only be put to the fire, thrown in the fire. John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, said these pointed words about these type of people. It says, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, the so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread like ours, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life, 
while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Right on target. That is why it is so important to understand clearly what it means to follow Jesus. That is why it is so important that we understand when there is a cost to pay, it is worth paying because Jesus is worthy. And these truths must be clearly a part of our gospel presentation as well. Now you may conclude, boy, if that's, that's what it means to follow Jesus, meaning surrendering my life, surrendering my, comf- my comforts, and not pursuing a life of my own pleasures, cross, cross-bearing and things like that. If all this is what is needed, then I'm better off in not making a decision to follow Jesus. I will remain just as I am. At least that way, I'm not a hypocrite. If you're thinking like that, Jesus right away follows up with a second illustration. Why you cannot do so. What is the second one? It's a warning against taking such kind of a decision. Verses 31 and 32. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Story again straightforward. First king has 10,000 soldiers. There's an enemy coming with him. Double the force. He's got two choices. One, either go into battle and be killed or find out what the terms of peace are. And he cannot set those terms. He has to ask the opposing king, what are your terms? And submit to those terms. You ask, how do you connect this with this? Simple. God is coming in judgment. We cannot escape his judgment other than only one way. Jesus is the means through which we can have peace with God and avoid this judgment. So, what Jesus is saying is simple. If you think the cost is too high to follow me, the cost of not following me is much higher because there is a judgment coming and you cannot, you cannot withstand this judgment on your own. So if the first parable makes you think, I'm going to stay away, the second parable forces you to go back and say, I cannot afford to stay away. In the first parable, the decision seemed to be on the owner. But in the second There's no choice. It's forced upon. So Jesus says, go back. Go back. Count the cost and make the right decision, which is be willing to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and come after me. That's the point he's trying to help us see. He's calling us again. Make the right decision. I must be the number one priority of your life. I want you to understand this clearly so that you're not deceived into thinking you're truly my follower when you are not. I don't want you to stand on that day and be among the people that would say, Lord, Lord. And I would say, I never knew you. I don't want you to be in that category. Listen, we must understand God's grace in saving sinners is not a cheap thing. Grace is not cheap. Grace does not mean God doesn't demand any change in our lives. Someone has said, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing but the annual subscription is everything. 
In other words, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. But this grace demands total allegiance to Christ at all times. Once again, hear the strong words of Bonhoeffer. The subject of cheap grace versus costly grace. That's what he says. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian's conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be self-sufficient to secure remission of sins. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any desire to be delivered from sin. In other words, people only want forgiveness for sins, but not deliverance from sin's power. Cheap grace, he goes on to say, therefore amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. You've heard the popular statement, God only punishes the sin, not the sinner. The Bible has something else to say. Grace alone, he goes on to say, does everything they say and so everything can remain as it was before. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. No difference between professing Christians and unbelievers sometimes. But they think that's okay. Cheap grace he says, is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It's not the grace that God gives. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, he says, is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Jesus, kingly rule of Jesus for which a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man, gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly. It's costly because of this. Because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace. He ends with this statement, costly grace is the incarnation of God. That's why the call of Jesus, the call of the one who came in flesh and blood as God incarnate, as grace incarnate, should make perfect sense to us. If anyone comes to me, 
and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Listen, it costs Jesus his life to secure our forgiveness. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin, Hebrews 9.22. And not just any blood, the blood of the one and only precious Savior and King. Jesus Christ, how can we ever dare to cheapen that price that Jesus paid by shedding his blood so we can have life by compromising on these truths? In light of such a great love, how can we ever say no to his call, his loving invitation to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to come after him and to put everything that comes in between him and us to death? How can we say no to that? That's why Jesus goes on once again to repeat the call to discipleship in verse 33. In the same way, those of you, this time he extends it, who do not give up everything you have to earthly possessions. He talked about family, life, and now your possessions. If you're not willing to give up everything you have, who do not give up everything you have, cannot be my disciples. He says, the inward attachment deep in our heart that we have to the things of the world must be broken. I should be the only attachment of your heart. These are Jesus' words, not mine. Let me remind you again. We can in our hearts function like the Jesus Seminar movement. I don't think he really meant this. That's what the text says. I should be the only attachment of your heart. Your family, your possessions, your position or any other relationship which clearly rules out evangelistic dating. Any other relationship, not even your life, absolutely nothing should come between you and me. That's his call. That's his demand. The one who gave up everything for us deserves Nothing less than our total surrender. The way to life is dying to self and living for Jesus. That's discipleship. As one commentator, Daryl Bach, said this, Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to commitment. It is not how little one can give that is a question, but how much God deserves. We, we look at it, how little can I give and get away? Oh, everything is at his disposal. Because he deserves everything. Jesus is not done just yet. He concludes with a very serious warning. It's a warning by giving us another illustration to help us understand the nature of true discipleship through the picture of salt. Look at verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? He says it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Salt, as, as long as it remains salty, functions in three ways, as a seasoning, as a fertilizer, as a preservative. But if it loses its value, it's worthless. Now, I don't have time to go through how salt, if you're into the chemical engineering stuff, sodium chloride, stable compound, how it can lose its stability. But what we're talking about here is salt in Israel. At that time, mostly got from the Dead Sea, was mixed with gypsum and other impurities. And when moisture would hit, the salt would evaporate, and all you have left is the impurities, which is useless. But the point what Jesus is making here is very clear, isn't it? If our lives are mixed, we're useless to God, useless to others. He must occupy that number one position. No 
co-number ones. No Jesus being the co-pilot. No, nothing like that. People, Jesus says, who live such lives where they can have these impurities. The pure in heart, Jesus talks in the Beatitudes. People think pure in the heart refers to sexual purity. Yes, it does, but it's more than that. It's a single-minded devotion to God and His interests. And God says, every knee is to bow down to my son. And people who live lives with these mixed interests, what a great tragedy they will face in the end. Tragedy of life without Jesus in a place that Jesus himself described as a place where the fire never goes out. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. You see, we are created to worship and honor God, to please Him in all ways. Sin broke that original purpose, but through Christ we're redeemed, we're put back for that purpose. But we cannot please ourselves and please Jesus at the same time. We cannot have Jesus at our beck and call. We must be glad that Jesus even calls us to follow him. And his terms are clearly laid out here. It's up to us to lean on the Holy Spirit to help us to respond rightly. That's why Jesus closed his teaching here with a strong word of warning. Whoever has ears to hear, they better listen. That's the idea of let them hear. It's a strong command. Pay attention. Because if you don't, what's at stake here is your soul. It's your soul. Listen, we cannot live any way we want and still have an assurance of going to heaven. Jesus himself said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Many. Massive amounts. If you have a doubt about massive on the broad road, Think about the time of Noah. Only one family survived. rest of the world perished. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Only a few. Why is it narrow? Because I cannot take all my baggage with me. There is a baggage restriction. You must be willing to deny everything. But, Jesus says, the broad road leads to death. And it's the narrow one that leads to life. These people who by the grace of God are in that narrow road are those who cherish Jesus more than anything else. More than family, more than their possessions, their position, and more than even their own life. They know they are on that road only by the grace of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they realize the infinite value of Jesus. And that's why they are gladly willing to give up everything. Not reluctantly, as though God has to pry it out of their hands. Sometimes God does that, breaks our fingers in the midst to teach us because we are a stiff-necked people. But God teaches, teaches them. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your position, possession. These are people who are marked by holiness, humility, forgiveness, generosity, a brokenness over their own lives. They lovingly serve Jesus by serving their neighbors. They don't cherish sin but hate it and always seek his help to get rid of it. And when they do sin, which they do, 
they keep running back to Jesus with a truly repentant heart, not giving excuses, but acknowledging, I have sinned and allow him to cleanse them once again and put them back on that narrow path and the joy they once again pick up the cross and resume the journey. They're like Moses, about whom was set off in Hebrews 11, verse 25 and 26, who chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. They don't live for this temporary world. Like Moses, they regard the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because, like Moses, they are also looking ahead to the coming great reward. And what's that reward? Being with Jesus. Jesus is that reward. Being with him, treasuring him, worshipping him forever. Examine your life. Instead, ask the Holy Spirit to examine your life. What road are you on? Road to destruction or road to life? Road to hell or road to heaven? It's not too late. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, right now, as you are, you can come to him. Be willing to submit to Jesus and his authority over your life. Nobody can save you from God's wrath other than the Son of God himself. Only Jesus can. Only he lived that perfect life, took all of God's wrath on that cross so that all who would put their faith in him will never have to face that wrath. Cry out to him to save you. Ask him to open your eyes to see him as the greatest treasure. Plead with him to give you a new heart and a new spirit. He will hear your cry. He will wash away all your sins. Come to him with all your doubts, with everything. Just come. He will pick you up as you are. But he won't leave you there. He will forgive you. He will send the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you. Seek life, not death. And for those of us, who by the grace of God have experienced the saving grace, let's examine our lives. Are we living up to our confession? Is Jesus really the number one priority of our lives? Again, let's ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. As David says, not pray for the Holy Spirit to search my neighbor's heart, but search my own heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. You search it. You bring it out. And where he shows these idols, let's again go to him. Lord, you break it. You put me back as the number one priority of your life. He will answer that prayer also. Wise investing, we are told, is not to put all our money in one investment. That may be true in the material realm, but in the spiritual realm, it's completely different. Jesus calls us to entrust everything, including our very lives, into his hands, those nail-pierced hands, the safest hands in the universe, those hands that will keep us secure from the coming wrath. By faith, let's commit ourselves afresh and put him as the number one priority of our lives. And when we do that, like Calvin, we too can joyfully say, I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? I have found everything in Christ. Jesus alone is enough. All his words, even these hard sayings, is music to the ears of those who are on that narrow road because of his grace. They know that his words alone are the words that give true life. Let me close with this true story. 
Karen Watson, was one of five workers with the International Missions Board, the IMB. They were resolved to obey God with gladness wherever God calls them. And she realized God called her to leave the comforts of home into the war-torn Iraq where millions needed to know him. So on March 15, 2004, just after the fall of Iraq, as they were working on a water purification project in Mosul, their truck was sprayed by bullets by men who didn't understand their mission. Karen was among the four who died that day. But just before her trip, she had given a letter to her pastors, asked them to open it only in the event of her death. The letter was dated March 7, 2003, a year ago. Here are portions of that letter. That's what she said. When God calls, there are no regrets. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. In regards to my service, the funeral service, she said, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. And then she went on to quote the missionary heart. Some of you are familiar uh, with those words. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. Care more than something is wise. Risk more than something is, sa- something is safe. Dream more than something is practical. Expect more than something is possible. I was, not, I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. And she ended the letter with this note. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. What's the reason this former detention officer who once lived a wild life in her younger days to this place where she knew she would face death? It's not a what, it's a who. Jesus met her. Completely changed her life. It was Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit opened her eyes to see his beauty. It was for Jesus she gave up all and in the end gained it all. She gained Jesus. It was her love for Jesus that made her not only write but also live out this truth. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. People who look for the glory of Christ joyfully carry the cross because it's the Holy Spirit who produces that joy in their hearts. They joyfully give up all because Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, would you please seal these truths to our heart? If not, they're just empty human words. Your Spirit work in our hearts as you have ordained for the results. 
eternity past to come through this passage in our lives today. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.